1: Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish. a collection of Michael's favorite interviews with authors from the last 30 years through today, on the air, on radio. What sets my book club apart is that I actually read the books. Book Club is now in session.
0: Stephen Brill is the lawyer and media entrepreneur. He's the founder of Court TV and Brill's Content. You'll remember that back in 2000 and. Thirteen, He wrote that amazing cover story for Time magazine. My recollection is that it was the longest ever cover story for Time. The subject was the escalating cost of health care. It was Brill who introduced us to the concept of the charge master. Do you know what the charge master is? I'll ask him to uh, to define it again for us. Anyway, he's now just published a brand new book. It's getting tremendous attention. It is called America's Bitter Pill, Money, politics, backroom deals, and the fight to fix our broken health care system. It's a privilege to welcome Steve Brill back to the program. Hey, Steve, thank you for being here.
2: Happy to do it.
0: So toward the end of the book, you are recovering, and we can get into why in just a moment. But you're watching more of the 630 newscasts than you normally would. And during one particular episode, you count drug commercials. I think you counted 19 in one particular newscast, and one of them was for Celebrex, which you were then taking. Tell me a little bit about Celebrex. Uh,
2: uh, Well, Celebrex is, uh, I guess, it's called an anti-inflammatory. If you have muscle aches and pains... um, it's a good drug, and um, I had muscle aches and pains because I had just undergone um, urgent open heart surgery. And when they take you know an electric saw to your chest, uh, you know after you know once they sew you up, you have a lot of pain. So I'm watching this commercial for this wonderful little pill with a little blue stripe around it, and um, I decided to do a little bit of research, and I realized that every pill I was taking, I was taking two of them a day. Uh, My insurance company was paying uh, $50 for it. Uh, The drugstore was only making about a dollar and a half profit, and the rest of the profit uh, was going uh, to Pfizer, uh, which makes uh, Celebrex. And Pfizer was also engaged in litigation um, involving their attempt to stop a a generic version of uh, Celebrex uh, from going on the market. Those pills probably cost Pfizer... Um, I did the math in the book. I don't have it in front of me, but you know, maybe a half a dollar each. So that gives you some sense of what the economics of healthcare are, and in particular, what the eco- uh, what the economics of uh, prescription drugs are. And that's right. why I but raised it
0: because you you also say that we spend fifty percent more for prescription drugs than the rest right. of the world.
2: Right. Uh, but, uh, the fact is uh, that Pfizer is very happy to make a ton of money selling that same drug. In France or Germany or England or Japan, uh, you know, for twenty dollars a pill, or you know, maybe less. Because now again, I imagine
0: Pfizer would say, "Well, we, we need to recoup our investment in all the R and D that went into it when we were trying to develop it. We didn't we didn't know we'd come up with a Celebrex."
2: Well, that's what they all say, and that's something as a journalist that drives me crazy. Is uh, uh, the journalists too often instead of doing the real reporting? Uh, do it on the one hand, on the other hand kind of story. So they'll quote someone like me saying, well, the price is too high, and then they'll quote the drug industry as saying, well, if we didn't get that kind of price and that kind of profit, we wouldn't have the money to take the risk of doing all the research and development we do. Well, that's nice, except when you look at uh, the financial reports they file with the SEC, what you see is that uh, their profits far outstrip, far, far, far outstrip the research and development that they do. In fact, uh, the larger drug companies are increasingly doing less research and development. What they do instead is uh, they buy up uh, the smaller companies that have done the research and development. So the numbers just don't add up. And then if you're even a little bit unsure about that, then what you do is you go online and read the transcript of the conference calls that the drug companies have, with their investors, and when they're talking to investors, they have a different tune than when they're talking to the press. When they're talking to investors, they brag about how you know, incredibly high their profit margins are.
0: When you're discharged, two or three weeks pass, and 36 envelopes then arrive in the mail, what are they?
2: Well, um, as everybody knows, what you get after you've had any kind of a medical situation is an explanation of benefits from your insurance company. Uh, when I got home from the hospital eight days after, I was greeted by 36 um, individual first class envelopes, each from United Healthcare. Each of the 36 uh, contained a different explanation of benefits for some different uh, procedure or drug or something that had happened to me while I was in the hospital. Uh, that tells you something right there about the efficiency of, of the healthcare industry. You know, 36 uh, first class envelopes you know, to say the same thing. I opened them and went through them, you know, with my wife. And, of course, I had a lot of time because I was recovering, so I really sort of got into these things. And as you mentioned before, um, as a result of doing the Time article and now as a result of doing this book, I fancied myself as an expert in this stuff. You know, if anyone can read these things, I ought to be Be
0: you, sure.
2: So I get to one of them, um, and one of them says, um, amount billed zero, Amount insurance company paid zero. Amount you owe one hundred and fifty-four dollars. And I show it to my wife, and we look at the thing. You know, we both have law degrees. We're trying to figure this out, and we can't figure it out. It's just you know emblematic of just how crazy and incomprehensible the system is. But as it turned out, I had scheduled an interview for a few weeks later with the CEO of United Healthcare, which is the largest healthcare company in the United States, in fact, the largest uh, health insurance company in the world, Um, um, I had scheduled an interview with him to talk about the other aspects of the book uh, that I was doing, how Obamacare was affecting the insurance industry, et cetera, et cetera. So I go out uh, to Minnesota, and I come into his office, and I ask him questions about, you know, how does Obamacare affect the insurance industry, et cetera, et cetera. And then at the end, I couldn't help myself. I took that explanation of benefits out of my pocket, handed it. Uh, to him, um, across you know the conference table in his office, and so I'm wondering if you could do me a favor. Could you just explain this to me? You know, $154 I owe for something that was billed zero. Could he? How can that be? And so he looked at it, stared at it, you know, for a couple of minutes. Uh, the public relations guy from the company who was with him was getting increasingly nervous, and um, then he looked back at me and said, "I could sit here all day and I couldn't decode this for you." I have no idea what this means. I don't know why they sent it to you. And I said, well, aren't you they? It's your company. This is the single most basic frequent communication you have with your customers. And how are your customers supposed to understand it if you can't understand it? Um, And then he said something to the effect, well, the New York State regulations, New York is where I live, uh, the New York State regulations require that we word it this way. And I said, oh, well, could you send me a copy of those regulations? I wasn't aware of that. And his his PR guy got even more nervous with that. And a week later, they sent me uh, the regulations, which, of course, state the opposite. Uh, the regulation in New York, as elsewhere, says that explanations of benefits are supposed to be uh, communicated um, in a clear way so that a layperson can understand exactly what's going on. <laughs>
0: This is so Stephen Brill.
2: That, that, in a nutshell, tells you what you need to know about the health care system in the United States as compared to the rest of
0: the planet. Well, that's frankly, that's why I went there initially. That's why I wanted to talk about Celebrex and I wanted to talk about the 36 <laughs> envelopes, because as I read those vignettes toward the end of your book, I said to myself, uh-huh. the reason that this continues is that, frankly, most of us, we don't care. If we're not Steve Brill, who's intelligent enough to discern those bills and has expertise in it, all we want to know, Steve, is one thing. Am I covered? And if I'm covered, those 36 envelopes are, are going in the can. So there, there's another part of your uh,
2: you're book. Not covered I mean, You're certainly not covered for 100%. The reason I was covered for 100% was I had exhausted my $12,000 limit for out-of-pocket expenses. Now, for most people, hitting and exhausting a $12,000 limit is, is quite a hit.
0: There's a you know, there's a part of your right, book, but, I, I don't remember where the discussion is, but there's a part of your book about fear. And I thought that this really resonated because you said, when you get jammed up with your health or the health of a loved one, a son, a daughter, a spouse, all you want, all, there's no such thing I think you wrote as overpayment.
2: No. Uh, you lose
0: uh, all sense of rationality.
2: You'll do anything. Um, anything. And, and, and that's why the healthcare marketplace is not a marketplace because... Uh, first of all, you have no knowledge of what you need. You have no knowledge of exactly what you're buying. You have no knowledge of what the cost is of what you're buying. You have no knowledge of what the price is going to be. When you get the bill, you can't understand it. When you get the, uh, the notice from the insurance company, not only apparently can't you understand it, but the guy who sends it to you can't understand it. And the only thing you care about is you're in pain or your loved one is in pain or their life is in danger, and you want to get well. And uh, there's a scene in the book where um, right after the operation I had these coughing fits, and what you do not want to do if you have open-heart surgery is cough. It's just the most painful thing in the world, and it was so painful that right in front of my family on several occasions I blacked out. I blacked out you know, for two or three seconds, but I blacked out, and it was terrifying. Now, at that moment, if the nurse had come in and said, you know, here's a cough drop. It's $180. Right. I said, fine. Can I have three of them or 10 yeah. of them?
0: 180000 <laughs> yeah, You to spend four.
2: Whatever <laughs> it is. You know, and, and, and that's why, in the, I mean, the United States, 62% of the personal bankruptcies are the result of medical bills. Now, uh, the good news about Obamacare is that uh, that's going to go down because many more people, tens of millions of people, are going to have health insurance that they didn't have before they have it now that they didn't have before that's the good news about obamacare and and the crux of my book is that's the good news But the crux of my book also is that the bad news is that the taxpayers are going to pay the same exorbitant uh, uh... the same exorbitant prices that they've been paying before only they're going to be paying it on behalf of the tens of millions of new people who have access to health care i like the idea that they have access to health care What I'm scared of and what we should be scared of as a country is that the drug companies, the so-called non-profit hospitals, the medical device makers are going to continue to live in an alternate universe where their economy is great and uh, the rest of us has to suffer. So the bottom line is, you know, the problem with Obamacare is, you you know, to steal an expression, the prices are still too damn high, and Obamacare does nothing about that.
0: I, I wrote a note in one of the margins to myself that says Obamacare is all about who pays but not how much.
2: That's right. And, it, and again, I love the idea that you know this couple I met um, in, um, who had not seen doctors in four or five years um, in rural Kentucky got health insurance, got to see doctors, Uh, The woman who was diabetic and had lots of other problems, it turns out, also had a heart problem very similar to mine and was able to be treated. And she'd be dead if not for Obamacare.
0: This is Steve Brill. The book is called America's Bitter Pill.
2: This is the Book Club with
1: Michael Smirconish podcast from SiriusX. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big
0: learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen posed that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Listen to Michael live, weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124, and on the SXM app.
0: This is Steve Brill. The book is called America's Bitter Pill. Early on in the book, you trace the, the, the legislative history of Obamacare. You go back to Romney Care. You talk about the Heritage Foundation and you reference in detail Jonathan Gruber. And it occurred to me while I was reading it that the recent flap with Gruber right before the holidays where he used the stupidity word that took place after you'd already put the book to bed. What were you thinking while you watched that?
2: I was thinking uh, that I wasn't surprised because you'll see in the book that he's, you know, he's uh, quite happy to talk and, and, and probably not as sophisticated uh, when he talks as he should be. Um, I think the point he was making is a valid one, if, if awkwardly expressed, and that is that, um, well, that's what I say in the book uh, that Americans really don't understand Obamacare at all. And if you understand just health insurance, even, what you understand is that healthy people, uh, when they pay their insurance premiums, they are subsidizing sick people. That's what insurance is all about. And that's what he was really saying. And the other thing is, you know, know, most people don't understand that Obamacare, and uh, this is deliberate on the part of the administration, Obamacare is a much bigger welfare program. And I don't use that word as a negative Obamacare is a much bigger welfare program than the welfare program Ronald Reagan ran against in nineteen eighty or the welfare program uh, that Bill Clinton uh, was criticized for reforming in the nineteen nineties um and uh, you know Democrats used to be proud of that stuff now they ran away from it, and to the extent that Obama had trouble getting people to sign up, it was because they didn't emphasize that when you went to the exchanges, you were going to get these huge government subsidies to pay your premiums. You know, there I... are people who are, you know, 28 years old um, in Houston, Texas, who are getting health insurance on the exchanges that the governor of Texas opposes. Uh, they're paying, you know, 30 or $40 a month for, you know, great health care coverage.
0: Hey, Steve, I'm not giving it all away for free, but one more aspect, if well, I might. It's the summer of 2013. You're on an Amtrak train headed back to New York City from Washington. You've been in D.C. researching this brand-new book, America's Bitter Pill. You look down at your notes, and you realize something. What did you realize?
2: Well, what had happened was this was uh, sort of uh, the beginning of a series of interviews I was going to do because I was going to do another big piece for time about the triumphant launch of the healthcare exchanges, uh, which tells you how smart I am. Um, And... So I went down to do these interviews, and almost as a conversation starter, I would ask people, the people in the White House, people at the Department of Health and Human Services who were in charge of the program, who, who were running the program, I asked uh, uh, seven different people, well, who's in charge of the rollout? And I didn't really pay much attention to the answer until I got back on the train and was looking through my notes, and I realized I had gotten seven different answers from seven different people. <laughs> so I got home that night, and I said to my wife, I said, you know, this story is not going to be what I thought it was. Uh, this thing is really in trouble. There's nobody in charge.
0: We're going to knock their socks off.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, the, and, and the White House was so deliberately clueless, and I say deliberately, and I'll explain uh, why in a minute, that uh, the chief of staff uh, to the president, uh, Dennis McDonough, the night before the launch on October 1st, the night of September 30th, called around to a friend who had been saying, hey, you know, this thing might be in trouble. And he said, all the reports I'm getting are that when we launch tomorrow morning, we're going to knock your socks off. Well, he was right. It just wasn't right in the way he meant it. Um, and the reason for all this is that there was a faction in the White House led by Larry Summers, the, uh, the head of the of uh, the economics council, and by Peter Ozog, the budget director, and their staffs, who had told the president from literally the day the bill was passed that they had to bring in people from the outside with business experience and e-commerce experience to run this thing, that they couldn't let the policy wonks in the White House run this because they had no idea how to launch something like this. And Valerie Jarrett, who I identify in the book as uh, the actual chief of staff, um, uh, and uh, the president um, insisted that it would be launched by the people who were doing policy. And they kept getting more and more warnings, and they ignored the warnings.
0: The book is really a great read. I learned a great deal about an issue that I thought I'd paid close attention to, and I appreciate not only that you wrote it, but that you'd come back to the program to discuss it.
2: Oh, I always love your program. Are you kidding?
0: Thank you for that. Steve Brill. The book is called America's Bitter Pill. Thank you, Steve. Thanks. Great to talk to you, Michael. You Bye-bye. too. Thank you for that
1: hear more of michael smirconish on sirius xm's potus channel 124 live weekdays from 9 a.m to noon east or anytime on the sirius xm app connect with michael on facebook twitter youtube and at smirconish.com book club with michael smirconish new episodes drop mondays wednesdays and fridays bp added more than 70 billion dollars to the u.s economy in 2022